Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the sixth chapter of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 6. As today we look at God's Word dealing with the subject of the Ark of the Covenant and uh, the things that happened as it was brought back into Jer Jerusalem. And uh, this particular story is sort of alarming in ways. There are things in Scripture or truths in Scripture that I consider to be irresolvable, at least with our limited grasp of truth because we're both sinners and finite, as to how two truths in Scripture can exist side by side that may seem like to some people a contradiction, but in reality is just truth in its full orb. For example, the absolute sovereignty of God and the absolute human responsibility of man. Both of those truths are in Scripture. Both are true in an absolute sense. And yet, when we see them in Scripture, it's sometimes hard to reconcile them. But as Charles Spurgeon once said, you don't have to reconcile friends. They're not enemies, they're friends. I thought that was a cute way to say it. And I can credit him with it, therefore I don't have to take responsibility for it. But with that said, uh, look in 2 Samuel chapter 6, and our reading will be the entire chapter of chapter 6. Hear now the word of the Lord. David gathered all the chosen men at Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. He's a Gentile. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. 
And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because the ark of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with sh shouting and with the sound of the horn. And the ark of the Lord came into the city of David. Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household, but Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father. That's a pretty good stab. And above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. This is God's word. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you so much for giving us the book of 2 Samuel and the story of King David and how it points so vividly, so often, to the person and work of Christ. And so we pray today that as we spend time together here, you would speak to our hearts about the nature of our relationship with you, about the truth that you are holy love. And so, Father, as we take this time to look at this, we pray your blessings upon all who hear that defenses may be dropped and that with open faces we might behold the glory of God as in a mirror and be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. One of the things that stands out in this text, of course, is the death of Uzzah, and we will talk about that in a moment. But here in the context, we begin to understand something about the nature of God. Yahweh in the Old Testament is often referred to as a holy warrior who fights for Israel against Israel's enemies. But there's a flip side to that. Not only is God a holy warrior that fights for Israel 
against Israel's enemies, but God also fights against Israel if Israel disobeys him. And so he is the holy, divine warrior. And we'll see that in this text. We'll see the tension between God's absolute holiness and his wondrous, amazing love. God is holy, and his holiness is not compromised or changed in any way by his love. And God is love, and yet his love in no way diminishes or compromises his holiness. God is holy love. That means that God is both dangerous and good. Both dangerous and good. And we'll see that as we go through this text. So David is ready to get everything going in Israel now because... Uh, he decides to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Now, understand something about the Ark of the Covenant. I want to give you just a little information on it so you'll know in your head what we're talking about. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant has a long and noble and important heritage in Israel. Instructions for its construction and explanations for a meeting place between God and man are first given to us in the book of Exodus. There are more than 20 different designations given to the ark in the Bible. It was a rectangular chest of acacia wood. It was gold-plated, and capped on the top was the outstretched winged cherubim facing one another. And under those wings in this box that was gilded with gold was the mercy seat. On the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice there for the propitiation and expiation of sins. And the ark contained within it three things. First, it had a bowl of manna. You remember manna in the Old Testament, how God fed his people during the wilderness wanderings with this white sort of coriander seed-looking bread that they found each morning as they went out People didn't know what to call it, so they called it, what is it, which is what manna means, what is it? So there was a bowl of that in the Ark of the Covenant. There was also Aaron's rod. And if you remember, Aaron got into a controversy over whether or not he was a prophet of God, and other prophets were challenging him to that, so they all threw down their uh, rods on the ground, and his burst forth in bloom, therefore designating Aaron as a prophet of God. And so that was in there. And I don't know if they, how they made it fit. It doesn't say, but it was in there. And the last thing that was in there were a copy of the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments were in there, a bowl of manna, and Aaron's staff, all of which are types and foreshadows of Jesus Christ. You remember Jesus in his discourse uh, on the bread of life told the people listening that day that when Moses and the children of Israel were fed with the bread that he himself was that bread and that life is not by bread alone but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God and so the bread of life is the sustaining life-giving power of the Lord Jesus Christ what about Aaron's uh, rod that budded 
Jesus is the one who causes us to be born from above, to be regenerated. A dead stick blossoms, brings forth life. A dead heart, through the operation of the Holy Spirit, becomes alive to God through the regeneration work of the Spirit and because of Christ's work for us in redemption. But the third one was the Ten Commandments. And the reality is, God has given us his law, and no one can keep it. No one can obey it. Even believers today, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, in many ways, because of motives, often disobey God's law. So it's not about our obedience to the law, but rather Christ's obedience to the law. And so when you look at the Ark of the Covenant, what you're really seeing is a portable temple in reality representing the one who comes to replace the temple who is the true temple of God, the Lord Jesus himself. And so David's interested in moving all of this into Jerusalem. And most importantly, the ark symbolized the presence of God for the Israelites. If you wanted to meet with God, where would you go and meet with God? Moses learned to go and meet with God in the tabernacle right before the Ark of the Covenant, and God would speak to Moses there. And so it was central to the worship and understanding of Israel about the presence of God. Now, those of you who are really good theologians know something about omnipresence, that God in the entirety of his being is present in every point of space. But the kind of presence I'm talking about isn't just the omnipresence of God, but rather a special presence of God, a presence of communion, a presence of God being there. And so when the children of Israel looked at the tabernacle and they looked at the uh, uh, Ark of the Covenant, which above it dwelt the Shekinah glory of God, a visible manifestation of his presence, then they knew that God was in their midst and that God was blessing them and that they had protection and that they had grace. And so the priest, of course, would come and sprinkle the mercy seat with blood, therefore for indicating uh, sin being atoned for. Uh, so it was a sacred object guaranteeing the safety of God's people. And God's presence as a divine warrior uh, on the behalf of his people is represented in various ways throughout the Old Testament. Now, some of you are thinking about Raiders of the Lost Ark and where is the Ark now? Well, most people believe that when the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem, the Ark was destroyed or taken away. And that's why we don't know where it is. But the real reason the Ark doesn't matter anymore because the one who the ark points to has come and that's Jesus so don't get all wrought up about that if you're the kind that gets all wrought up about it because that's the point it was to portray for us to depict for us and we'll talk more about that in just in a moment but I do want to go further here with the whole process of bringing up the ark the ark is called by the name, that is the name of God, as God represents himself, particularly in his glory. And then second, we are told that God is enthroned between the cherubim, the two-winged angels above the ark. God is enthroned there. Uh, scripture even refers to the ark of the covenant as the footstool of the throne of God as he dwells present among his people. 
And so that's where God's presence was manifest. That was the place where men met with God on the basis of blood sacrifice. And so David decides to bring the ark to Jerusalem. And in his zeal, he solicits a couple of guys to come and bring the ark, Uzzah and Ahio, not Ohio, but Ahio. And uh, they get a new cart. Now, I'm sure they're thinking in their hearts, look, the Philistines moved it around w- with a cart. And, uh, but Uzzah had the responsibility to transport this particular object, which was the object in the life of Israel, to Jerusalem. But he didn't check where he should have checked. And if he would have read the book of Numbers, if he would have picked up a scroll somewhere and blown the dust off the book of Numbers and read that the only way this ark can be transported according to the will of God is that Kohathites, that is part of the priesthood, would run, there were rings on each corner of the ark and they would run poles through the ark and put them on their shoulders. And so four guys would walk with two poles carrying the ark. That's how it was to be transported. And yet Uzzah transported the ark on a new cart. Now some of you are going to get really upset with this, and it's okay if you do, get upset. But understand that that's how God said you transport the ark. And understand that that is the sacred image of God's relationship with his people and his presence with his people. And so they put it on a new cart and they go along pretty well until one of the oxen stumbles and Uzzah does what everybody in this room would have done or tried to do, which is what? You don't want that thing hitting the ground, right? I mean, he did at least have some sense of reverence, so he jumps out to touch it and he's immediately struck dead. God breaks out on him four times the text says God broke out on him and the concept of breaking out is like a dam breaking and water flooding or like uh, heavy rains that we get here in Nevada and it floods or the idea of, of something being outpoured upon someone and so God took Uzzah's life just like that a couple of things you need to remember Uzzah was not an innocent man. It's not as if God is destroying a perfect, innocent person. It's God bringing judgment on a man who disobeyed him. Now, the fact is, everybody's in this room is a sinner. And if God enacted judgment upon us in terms of what we deserve, you might say, well, Uzzah didn't deserve that. He was trying to do the right thing. No, if we got what we deserved, we could all go home and forget it because hell is where we're going. And you say, well, I don't like that. I don't either, but it's true. It's the truth. Because God is what? God is holy. He is of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look approvingly on sin. God hates sin. God separates himself from sin. Sin separates us from him. God is so absolutely purely holy that sin cannot come in contact with him. It will explode. It will burn up. Our God, Hebrews said, this is not the Old Testament, this is the New Testament. Hebrews says our God is a consuming fire. A consuming fire, a fire that devours. And so 
The problem with Uzzah and the problem with us is we try to humanize God. We try to make God over into our image. No, he made us in his image. And he doesn't want us to return the thanks for that by trying to remake him in our image. God is holy. He's pure. He's absolutely unstained. He's transcendent. He's other. He's the God with whom we have to do. And we cannot cavalierly deal with him or treat him as if he's a kind grandfather who will forgive you in a couple of, day, couple of weeks. God is holy. And in order for us to have the presence of God in our life, something's got to be dealt with in regard to our sin. Because you can't overlook that. God doesn't overlook that. And the scripture abounds with instance after instance. Here's one. There's a guy named Isaiah in the Old Testament. He's a prophet. Most of you have heard of Isaiah, right? And Isaiah was a godly man. He was well-respected in his city. He was held in high regard, even reverenced as a prophet of God. And so in chapter 6, he goes into the temple one day, and he sees the Lord high and lifted up. That is transcendent, the otherness of God. He is absolutely smitten by that. And God's train filled the temple, and he, between the cherubim, there were six uh, cherubim with their wings flying, uttering constantly at the presence of God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the Bible text says Isaiah was undone. And literally what the word undone means in the presence of the holy God was that Isaiah fell apart. It's the word for disintegrate. He completely fell apart in the presence of the holy. Some of us think that if Jesus walked in the room in his resurrected uh, glorious state, we'd walk up and high five and say, good to see you, buddy. If Jesus was to appear in this room right now in the glory and holiness that he possesses as the risen uh, Lord and King and Master of the universe, we'd all be diving under the seats. You can't trifle with the holiness of God. It's, it's irreverent, not only irreverent, but it is stupid because he's absolutely pure. And so Uzzah takes the hit. And the Bible says David was angry. It doesn't say who he was angry at. It wouldn't bother me if he was angry with God, but he was angry. He was angry at himself. And so David said, we've got to cut this short. Just leave it where it is, and it goes to the house of a guy named Obed-Edom. Obed in Hebrew means servant, so he was a servant of Edom. Edom, as you know, is Gentile. He was part of the Gittites, and the Gittites were from Gath. To be a Gittite, you had to be from Gath. And so the ark remained there, and a few weeks later, David hears that God is blessing the socks off of Obed-Edom because the presence of the ark was there at his home. And so David says, woe is me. We better go do something about this. So somebody goes and gets a scroll and blows off the dust of numbers and reads how you're supposed to do it. But when you watch how David brings the ark back, notice that he took what? How many steps? What does the text say? Six steps and he does what? 
he offers a sacrifice. You see, once David had seen Uzzah perish, he asked the most important question in the whole book of 2 Samuel, how can God's ark come to us? Basically, what he's saying is, how in the world can I live with God? How can I live in the presence of God? I'm a sinner. He's holy. How can I live? And so when David is offering these sacrifices along the way, he's recognizing the fact that there's only one way sinful man can meet with holy God. He's got to have a mediator between him and God, and that's what the inside of the ark means. And there has to be a mercy seat where sin is taken care of, and the sacrifice after sacrifice, the priest would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat on top of the ark indicating forgiveness mercy the sins had been expiated and propitiated by the sacrifice ultimately looking forward to the coming of Christ who went to the cross on our behalf so that God's wrath would break out on him like Uzzah and not on us as we so deserve and so the whole point of the ark narrative in the book of 2 Samuel is pointing to the reality, how can I live in the presence of a holy God? I have no hope unless I can find a covert, a place to hide. And my place to hide is in Jesus. Jesus went to the cross, and just as God's wrath broke out, David said, upon Uzzah, on the cross of Jesus Christ, he drank the dregs of the wrath of God. God poured out his judgment upon Jesus so that you and I, by repenting of our sins and trusting in Jesus, can enter into the safe place of relationship with him. Yes, God is very dangerous, but he's also very safe in Christ. He becomes our Savior, our Deliverer, which tells me you know, I hear people, you know, I, I've heard a lot of cussing in my life, done a lot of cussing in my life. Uh, I remember I used to work on a freight dock, and I was known as the Bible answer man on my freight dock because I was a Christian. I was memorizing Scripture while driving the forklift, and they all saw it, and they all mocked me, you know, good-naturedly. But the one I couldn't take was people calling Jesus or Jesus Christ or Christ. I don't know, that just got all over me. And I stopped a guy one day and I said, please. I said, I don't want to come off as holy and thou. I'm not. I'm as big a sinner as anybody in this building. But I want you to know when you talk about my Jesus that way, you use that tone of voice and you use him for cursing. That makes my skin crawl because that Lord Jesus Christ is coming back in vengeance to bring judgment upon those who do not obey the gospel. So the book of 1 Thessalonians says. And so I hear it a lot. And it bothers me every time I hear it. It's not that I'm condemning the person. It's that I'm fearful for the person. It said David was afraid of the Lord, but in the best sense of the word, David being afraid of the Lord meant this. He was standing in awe of the reality of God expressing his godness. That's what it meant. He was overwhelmed by the presence of God. 
And so if you're ever around me, please do not say Jesus or Christ or Jesus Christ as a cuss word. The others, I don't care about. But that one, I do. Because you're talking about the one who stood between me and the outbreaking of God's wrath. He is my Savior, and I love him. And it offends me deeply when I hear that. And my heart goes out to you when you say it, because I'm sure you're saying it not thinking. It's just a habit like everything else. But enough with that. So they got the ark there. They moved it, and they got it in the place. And as they were bringing... The ark in, uh, you know, David begins to dance. I haven't watched that movie King David in which Richard Gere starred. Years ago it came out. I don't know if any of you have seen it recently. But the one thing I remember about that movie was I was taking Hebrew then, so it had to be, it had to be back in the uh, 87, 88 era. And we had studied this particular text especially on the kind of dance David did as he was bringing in the ark. And by golly, when Richard Gere danced before the ark with all his might, he did it exactly the way the Hebrew text says it. It's basically twirling around in a circle and jumping up and down with praise, and he was giving it all he had. Why was he so thrilled? Because that meant that the presence of God was going to be established now in Jerusalem, and he provides a tent for it. It's not the tabernacle. The tabernacle had been located somewhere else in Israel. I'm not sure where. But now David just creates a tent, puts the ark in there. Now God is in the midst of his people in Jerusalem, all Israel, and David is celebrating with all his might. Now, I remember uh, people talking about that. And uh, so there, back when I started planting Spring Meadows Presbyterian Church, the big fad among churches at that time was dancing before the Lord. And so they felt like that liturgical dance or dancing during the worship service was appropriate. I don't think that's what this text is about altogether. I think it's David celebrating in the way that they celebrated. It doesn't bother me if somebody wants to do the evangelical trot while they're singing something. But that led me to do something that I'm embarrassed to tell you about. Several years ago, Mark Anderson will remember this, some of the older folks, Ed Kelly will probably, we had a mime in the service. You remember that, Mark? Yes, you do. I think I heard from you after that service. I thought, what are you doing? We had a mime trying to be relevant, but sometimes when you try so hard to be relevant, you end up just being stupid. And that's what I was. I was stupid. But I don't think there's anything wrong expressing joy jumping up and down before the Lord. It doesn't bother me in the least. And it didn't bother David, but it did bother Michal. Michal didn't like it. Because when David danced, he wasn't completely naked. He would be what we call in the South half naked. Which basically means he had certain body parts covered. But he didn't have the kingly robes on. He didn't have the kingly dress on. He had on a linen ephod, which is 
the clothing of the priests, usually worn underneath the robes that they wore on the outside. And so David is dancing with all of his might in a linen ephod. In Michal, you remember who she is. She's the daughter of Saul, who David initially married, and then she was taken away, and then he got her back. But she's looking out the window, and she is absolutely scandalized by his behavior. Oh, yeah, you really look like a glorious king today out there dancing around half naked in all of the uh, uh bringing in the ark. And so uh, she starts in on David. And this is not her most glorious moment. And so she comes uh, and notices his dancing. And David has just found out how one can live in the presence of God through the sacrifices. And he is exulting in the mercy and grace of God that has come into his life. And it, things have changed. When one went to Mount Sinai, you felt the threatenings and judgment of God. You couldn't even touch the mountain or you would die. But now they're in Mount Zion. Remember, Jerusalem is now regarded as Mount Zion. And when we come to Mount Zion, we don't come to a literal mountain or a literal ark. The mountain and the box were both pointers to heaven and God himself. And when we come into the presence of God himself... We do so how? Through the sprinkled blood of Jesus. But Michal says how the king has distinguished himself today. She's being sarcastic and ironic. And the word distinguished comes from glory or weight. You've not given due weight to your position, she was basically saying to the Lord. And so Michal makes fun of him, mocks him before the presence of the Lord. And David responds, I will become even more undignified than this. I will be humiliated in my own eyes. What this whole thing is about is what is called reputation. The fear of man, which wipes out the fear of God in the lives of people. In other words, Michal is looking at her husband and saying, you look ridiculous. You look obscene. You are scandalizing me. You are hurting my reputation because of your joy and exuberance in the Lord. And David said, I could care less about what people think about my dancing in the presence of God. I'll become even more undistinguished. I will humiliate myself before the Lord. Why? Because David understood maybe for the first time that he could approach God with joy and confidence and hope and comfort because of the ark and what it represented and the blood shed and poured upon the mercy seat that now he was able to be in the presence of God without having to fear for his life. I want to tell you, when you care about Jesus more than you care about anything else, you just lose how you come across to other people. I don't mean to be crude or rude or um, difficult. What I'm saying is, is you're not afraid anymore. The fear of man has been swallowed up by the fear of God. And what that means is you're able to stand for the Lord and be joyful in his presence 
regardless of how people, you know, I told you when I worked on the freight dock driving the uh, forklift, I got mocked, I got ridiculed every day, every night. And at first, it bothered me. I started thinking, well, maybe I ought to just tone it down a little bit, you know. Maybe I ought not to take such a radical stand here. But the glory of it came over time as I became more confident about God's acceptance of me in Christ. The one who spoke the universe into existence is my Father. What do I care what you think? Or what do I care what you say, all things being equal? What do I care? I don't. I have the love and devotion and commitment to my heart of one who loves me more than I can imagine. And so if you want to disapprove, that's okay. Paul said he didn't care who judged him. He didn't even care if he judged himself. There's a freedom there to be real, authentic, and relaxed in the Lord. And David had it, and Michal did not. Now, the text tells us that she died childless, which was a huge stigma of not being blessed under the old covenant. But she died childless. Now, it didn't say God closed her womb. didn't say any of that. It didn't say whether David might have said, I'm done with you. You know, I got a bunch of concubines and wives. I'm done with you. You're, we will never be together again. I don't know what happened, but I know she died, child, died childless. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God unless the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed you from all sin and you live before him with authenticity and dependence and in reality of his presence in your heart. God now dwells in the heart of a believer through the presence of the Holy Spirit. We have become the temple. He dwells in us. You think about that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message. We ask that we would really give serious thought to what it means to say that God is both dangerous and good. God is both holy and love. Probably very few people anymore take seriously the holiness of God, and how we pray there would be an awakening of that in our own hearts first so that we would be compelled to plead with others to come to Christ. Now, Father, as we continue to worship you today, we pray that we would give his people who are celebrating before the Lord with all of our might his goodness and mercy to us, and we pray in Christ's name, amen.